for people nowadays. I have, of course, nothing to say to them what they should do now. I'm an older woman and um, I won't enter in nothing today. No, of course I enter. I'm politically active, but um, not um, not in this way I had been, and I can't, and I don't want no one to give uh, advice. No, but what I think it's really very important is that young people today or everyone, but young people who want to do something, who want to act politically, know history. N have a memory of what other people before them made, tried, and what experiences they made. If not, they will always begin really again at point zero, and that's not necessary. It makes them... Um, much more weaker than it would be if they um, know some experiences and know about learning. <laughs> Na bupori papia também Desabre um bocado com mim Vite a coragem, bufinca pé Cima só the first half of the 20th century is marked with different Marxist-Leninist ideas that conquered the world in the hope for overthrowing the older capitalist system. The revolutions in Russia, South America, China, Iran, and many other countries throughout the world showed how fragile but also how brutal capitalism was. The Second World War and the brutal attack of the USA to Hiroshima and Vietnam had many activists on the left seen to wake up again to the call to fight barbarism. While colonialist systems had already started exploiting Africa and South America and were moving toward militarizing Far East, the anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist political currents in the center of exploitation started playing important roles. Distancing themselves from pacifism of the 68 movement, some of them decided to start a full-fledged war with imperialist systems. One could say the 1970s was a decade in which urban guerrilla was trying to show the public how the exploitation worked and that an alternative to the anarchic capitalism could exist. RAF, or the Revolutionary Army Faction, was created in the beginning of 1970s with such a concept. The story is as follows. Andreas Bader, who took part in many actions in West Germany against imperialism, was arrested in June 1970 in West Berlin. Shortly after, Ulrike Meinhof, along with Gudrun Enslin, took the initiative to release Bader from the prison, a successful operation. RAF soon published an essay called The Urban Guerrilla Concept and went to action in 1972. Their operations included bombing police stations, U.S. Army headquarters, and other targets to protest Nazism, the Vietnam War, and other causes. 
the regime of West Germany and the U.S. intelligence system started a nationwide campaign against RAF. In an interview with me, Margaret Schiller tells me about her background and the timeline of her activities in RAF leading to her exile in South America. She joined RAF in 1971, but very shortly after was arrested and charged with a murder she didn't commit. Upon her release in 1973, she returned to the underground in the hope of rebuilding the organization of the group. But she was arrested again in 1974 as she was hiding in an apartment. Someone had been selling them for some time and they were arrested after simultaneous police engagements in Frankfurt and Hamburg. Hier ist das deutsche Fernsehen mit der Tagesschau. Guten Abend, meine Damen und Herren. Die Polizei hat eine Nachfolgeorganisation der Bader-Meinhof-Gruppe ausgehoben. The day Margaret was arrested for the second time, the news on the TV announced that police had received a threatening letter from RAF that they wanted to bomb a stadium. Margaret denies this claim and says RAF would have never published such a letter. On the same day, the police arrests everyone in Margaret's hideout. Rote Armee Fraktion. So hatte sich die Bader-Meinhof-Gruppe genannt. She spent most of the decade in prison. I didn't have enough time to talk with Margaret about the content of their political moves specifically, so I decided more to focus on her experience of exile, containing some of the background. I was born in 48. I have now 73 years. That's very important for me to begin with that, because I was born directly after the Second World War. And for most people nowadays, it seems that it has been 200 years ago. Oh no, it's very present. I know it's very present because I live this time and I can recognize where it is present. People who are young and who raised up without memory, without historical memory, can't recognize. Um, I'm not um, finished yet. I um, was raised up with people who had made the Second World War and who had been part in fascism of Hitler. And it continued in Western Germany after 45. The structures of this country are based with the work of these people and with certain kinds of um, fascist structures that never ended. And um, for a very long time here people thought or didn't know because they didn't occupy. We in the 60s, in the 70s, stand up, therefore. We didn't want to accept this fascist kind of thinking, behavior, structure. We wanted to um, finish that. But we were a minority, no? And we were young and we tr tried to um, really finish that. In that time, 
we read a lot of books from everywhere to understand what had made our parents and um, what had happened and how it continued. Then in the 80s there existed um, yet some of this um, consciousness but with 89 it was broken and the generations that um, raised up after 89 um, rose or got up yeah, with um, really um, a break in memory. What this state tried with everything to create that and it functioned. It's really something that is um, the interest of um, political elites to create that everywhere. To um, stop memories of um, resistance, of um, other possibilities, of real alternatives to the system. No, no. Every movement that had been, they try to stop memory to that. And um, in Germany, really, um, the, the memory of 68 became something like a, a film, very um, reduced in respect of the content. And the people who relate in, in medias or no, um, to 68 make a, a version that um, is, uh, that's cut all the real content of rebellion. Of course, if you look um, certain people who came out of that, the first minister of relation, um, exterior relations, Fischer, um, from the Green uh, was just the one who took part, was responsible, made the first um, military intervention, direct intervention of the German state after 45. That was a man who had a rebellion history in 68. No? And he was the first commander, um, not military, but he was the of relations, exterior relations, no? um, that he was responsible for this decision to take part in the war against Yugoslavia. And no, in 1991, yeah. So it's easy to change historical memory. Okay, I was took part in the most radical part of the rebellion. I was in the very, very short time in the guerrilla, in the 17th. Before really thinking, I was in prison. Before really studying um, in what I entered, I was in prison and I was seven years in prison and um, twice, tried again, 
fall down again, no? And um, I left in 79. More or less my 20th, I was in prison. More or less in the 17th, I was in prison. And um, I tried again in 79 to relate to or to create political movement, not guerrilla anymore, but radical political movement in 89, no, 85. I saw that it was necessary to leave Europe um, to prevent, to get prisoner for every life, for all my life. So I went to Cuba. I came to Cuba without knowing one word Spanish. It was everything new for me. And uh, without the possibility to communicate. So in a very direct way, I lost my voice because I, I couldn't communicate. And, um, and what happened to me was that um, people thought that I'm a tourist because it, Cubans can see at once where do you come from for your shoes or for your clothes and for your face and so of course very visible I was um, a European for some Cubans I was German they, there were at once Cubans that tried to relate with me, to me, in English, um, that were specialized to relate with women voyaging alone. They were very friendly to me, of course. They thought uh, I have something to give and um, they showed me, they accompanied me, they tried to get me in their, in their bed or they, that they could get in my bed and um, they were astonished that I didn't want that and so after a while they said oh perhaps you would like to have a woman Oh no, neither that. I want nothing of that. So, <clears throat> and I had no knowledge about this kind of social movement. In the same period, I got after a while my um, asylum. And um, with the prohibition of um, telling Cuban people why I was in Cuba. They forbid me to speak about my history, political history, and they forbid me to um, say that I have asylum. Um, there are more countries in the world who do that, um, but it's a very hard um, pressure that um, for me I couldn't really speak what had been my life. 
I couldn't speak um, why I had come. So I really had to rely on, on trying to understand other kind of communication, non-verbal communication. And um, really, of course, before I had lived with intuition too. No, um, I think when you have this kind of life I had, um, it's, uh, you need intuition. You need to feel what is getting around you. No? Um, n now in Cuba, I lived it in another way. Um, I lived it uh, in trying to understand with whom I have to do when I can't really speak. So what possibility I have to understand which kind of person is the person in front of me. No? Yeah. And when I returned to Berlin, I felt Berlin is trying to make me lose it. And I have to go out every year to remember what I learned and not to lose it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> One of these things. No. When I came to Cuba, I had been a person that was very strong in, uh, in a certain way. Um, a woman that is um, as strong as a man, that has the same capacity, the same possibility. And I say some, sometimes discussing, I could put every man above the table. Yeah. I had um, a strong capacity to um, discuss politically. Of course, I had been in, in, in jail, and in jail I had read, 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 no? I, I uh, read a lot, and um, I had a lot of knowledges. And when I came to Cuba, nothing of that had any value anymore. Because I couldn't speak. Words had no sense. It was a very strong break, but I'm nowadays, since a lot of time, I'm grateful to that. I was very curious where I am in Cuba um, to try to understand where I am, but at the same time, I was. Um, um, because of what I told you before, I was very, very lonely because I could not speak with no one about um, my feelings, my thinking, my questions. No? And um, I, as there was the prohibition of speaking of where I come from, um, I often made um, self-censorship. Um, when people tried to get nearer to me, I felt, oh, um, I can't explain a lot of things they want to know, so I will say what I'm, what is prohibited for me to say, so it's better I cut the relationship. I always was writing a diary. That was my 
form of dialogue. Uh, I never before had made that, but I felt I have to communicate. So, if I can't speak to a person, I speak to a diary. And um, then I got in a relationship to a Cuban, Cuban musician who insisted, insisted, insisted. And okay, then when I felt, okay, there is some deeper feeling, um, it, I can't enter in something like that without telling him whom I am, what is my history. So I told to him he couldn't believe. He was profoundly astonished when I told him that I'm not a tourist, that I have asylum and what was my history. He couldn't believe. So, okay, we got engaged. He went to live with me in my apartment that the Cuban state had given to me. After a certain time, I felt the necessity to write, to write down what I had lived, because I felt it will explode inside me if I don't find a possibility of a dialogue, and that was again writing, but writing down, not in a diary, but writing memory. There was no intention at the beginning to write a book. At the end, after eight years, it became a book, because I continued writing during eight years. At some point, she moved from Cuba to Uruguay and stayed there for another 10 years, till 1993. For me, it was really tremendously hard to return. I had no intention during the years I lived in Montevideo to return to Germany. Um, I had presented my book in 2000, but with the clear security that I don't want to return. And at the end, I became an economic refugee. I had to return because I couldn't work anymore in Montevideo. I couldn't feed anymore my children. Um, I had twins that at that time when we came to Germany had 14 years. So it was for me, again, I was forced to do it. There was no a voluntary decision and um, it was really, I was forced to do it. So I came to Germany and um, when I had presented my book three years before and when I returned at the beginning, I thought, oh, I can speak again German, um, it's my language. And here is a lot of things, relationships, um, structure, I know. And with a, within a very short time, I realized, oh, you know nothing here. It's another German, it's another country, it's not the same that you left 18 years before. And I'm not anymore the same person. I have changed too. I was not familiar anymore with what happened in this country and how people related. And 
I wanted something different because I had changed. But again, it was impossible to speak about that. Um, people here, the persons I knew, political comrades, 2003, 2004, had very closed mind. Exile? Oh. Exile. Adventure. Oh, you lived a big adventure, yeah? There was no consciousness about what means exile. Not neither with the people, the lot of people who live here, who live here exiled. No. A certain kind of um, trying to integrate me, for example. Oh, we go together with the next steps. And then, oh, you didn't read that book? You don't know that book? You don't know these discussions? Where have you been? Oh, you got stupid? Because you don't know what we know? That I know something different, that I had learned something very different, was not part of the thinking and relationing. No? So, my, my, uh, my children, have a black father, so they are not white. And we felt very strong racism. My children felt it in a very strong way. In the street, with people, with... No, I don't want to go in details now, you know what is racism. But when I said to my political friends, oh, you are so racist, everyone here. I said, but Margaret, no, we are not racist. What do you say? You are always exaggerating. That I heard very often. So, okay. You have to see really in the time of 2003, 2004, people thought here they are not racist. Nowadays they know that uh, existing a lot of racism. Theoretically, they know. I put the first years when I came to return to Germany with my children, I put the main fourth in trying to um, support them, my children, in um, coming along. They didn't speak German when we came here. I had no perspective before to return, no? And um, so they were really treated as typical migrants. I came to this apartment here. I left where I had lived with my children and tried to look what can I do where I am. The result was that I was so deep, desperate, that I thought, what is the solution for my desperation? I returned to Uruguay. That was not a solution because my children didn't want to return. They want, wanted to continue looking, but not returning. Um, I go to a psychiatrist. No, I can't do it in this country with my history. Impossible.
Third option, suicide. Now, I didn't give it to the state in prison and in no moment I won't give that. So, last option, another book. And you, I wrote my second book that had no, I had no intention to do that before, but there was no other solution in my situation. And it was good to do it. I felt different after finishing. I took, it took me four years in writing the second book about exile. And uh, yes, then I could start in another way. <laughs> Margaret explains about her prison time in her book Remembering the Armed Struggle, the English version of which I read two months ago. Anne Hansen, a member of Direct Action, which was an urban guerrilla group in Canada, wrote a foreword on the book in which she summarizes some of the tortures conducted on political prisoners in Germany. These include solitary confinement, sensory deprivation, physical restraints, 24-hour-a-day fluorescent light inside cells, surveillance and censorship of mail, and interruption of sleep. In Iran, I had experienced a 14-day solitary confinement, on the third day of which I was already experiencing visual hallucinations. After reading Margaret's book, I would say the two tortures that she bravely tolerated were the dead wing and force feeding. The dead wing is a whole ward of a prison made empty for one prisoner so that they can't hear anything, see no one, and experience grand sensory deprivation. This is of course not comparable to my own experience as I could still hear the voice of some prisoners inside my ward talking with each other and this gave me a feeling that life goes on outside my cell. The other torture that Margaret doesn't mention in this interview is force feeding. When the RAF prisoners went on hunger strike, they were taken forcefully in the cellar of the prison and were forcefully fed. At least two prisoners lost their lives because of this. Strapped down, handcuffs around the ankles, a strap 30 centimeters wide round the hips, four straps on the left arm from wrist to elbow. On the right, the doctor on a stool with a little crowbar. He puts it between your lips pulling them apart with the fingers at the same time, then between the teeth. As soon as your jaws are far enough apart, the medical orderly on the left pushes, shoves, forces the lockjaw device between your teeth. They use a red stomach tube the width of a middle finger. I was a month long, every day zwangsernährt. And for me, every zwangsernährung was like a vergewaltigung. Yeah, I describe it very in detail in my book, yeah. 
Um, but to summarize, I say they wanted to kill me. And it was not the only time they tried to kill me. But they tried to kill me um, by um, white torture. Oh, they wanted to destroy me by white torture. That is the typical um, torture in, in, in countries that are so highly technically developed. No? Um, I was one and a half year in conditions, in, a, in as we say, a dead wing, where I couldn't see other prisoners, where I couldn't hear other prisoners, where I was really alone, alone, alone um, for one and a half year. And um, my only contact to life was for one, the guardians, and for other, the animals outside, the birds. I was observing the birds. I was observing the spiders in the cell. And during this time, I had to fight a very conscious fight against getting crazy. In the morning, I knew I have to fight against getting crazy, very consciousness, and I don't know if I would succeed in, in the evening. No? It was a time when I um, often could not read nothing. I couldn't concentrate in nothing, only going in the cell up and down, up and down, and trying to not to get crazy and to observe birds and observe spiders and something like that. And when I left this um, uh, dead wing, I couldn't make a complete sentence anymore. I couldn't speak anymore. It took me a long time to regain capacity of verbal communication. And there were other situations than, um, for example, propaganda, um, political propaganda, media, is in these fights very, very important. There was a big tribunal in Stammheim against the founders of the guerrilla, where they tried to show the um, political projection of the state of this group, where they wanted to um, discredit completely um, as persons, as a political group, in every way, um, to say, oh, they were murderers, they were gangsters, they, are, they were bad persons, they're, no, um, all this. Uh, it's in all the world the same how they do it, um, how they try to, what they want to um, show of um, political opponents. No? So there was one person in our history, there are very, very uh, few persons who changed side and who were really betrayer and that made public um, declarations against 
the group and working with this political propaganda. So one of the prisoners changed side and um, accepted to be uh, the witness in the, in the process. At first they had accused him of murder and then um, they um, did not continue with this accusation and um, gave him a sentence, a very small sentence, because of his cooperation. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was witness of the situation when he murdered. I declared to my comrades that what I would declare in the tribunal against him and or I would explain the situation and what they had made him, what they had given to him. Okay, of course, they always heard everything that we spoke in the cells. No, of course. And so police knew, state knew that um, we had these conversations um, between us and that they had ex um, wished it was it really it was my wish to say no this man is telling not this truth but he is telling what he had um, agreed with the state because of the last sentence no i was a prisoner in the same prison as um, he was and um, but in another part and um, they made different the state made different maneuvers to um, try to convince me that it's better that I stop this declaration, my declaration. And at the end I got a letter um, that gave me a guardian um, and had not passed for no censorship that was normal, that it was, they had, it was obliged, no? Um, where this um, man, betrayer, tried for one time to convince me, threatening me that I will be killed if I um, make this declaration against him. I made the declaration and um, it was a very hard situation because um, the state advocates um, tried really to delegitimize my declaration. No? Okay. Margaret's declaration in the court was successful as the intelligence system stopped using the man as a bait. The tortures inside the prison went hand in hand with newspaper articles outside. The authorities provided the media with information about the prisoners and many times the media created science fiction out of them. One of these projects were the million dollar movie Bader Meinhof Complex, which according to Margaret is full of lies. I speak about a lot of personal things, no? It has a, that has a history. When I was arrested the first time, in the two weeks or something like that, before they had made me a very public person, the searched person in Germany. 
from one moment to the next I had been a public person and before I had been someone like one of millions. And um, I hadn't expected that for nothing. No? It was a big shock. And they continued with that after my arrest. They continued to public everything about me. And my parents worked with the media. And the media went to take photos from my youth, my childhood. They went to school where I had been, the neighborhood. They interviewed everyone and a lot of people spoke. In every detail I say, they put me naked. And I was in my cell. I saw this and I couldn't believe. I, I, and I couldn't do nothing. I couldn't do nothing. But I was naked for everyone in Germany. So, and when you are in this kind of cells in Germany, you are observed 24 hours a day. They listen to everything. There is a hole in the door and perhaps there is a camera and they are registering everything too. We knew that. We knew that they are made, making protocols of visits of your behavior in the cell and they were sending it to psychologists, psychiatrists in the USA and Special Institute of Counterinsurgency to analyze our behavior and see where they, they could perhaps enter to destabilize us. And they succeeded something like that with one comrade. They saw he is getting unstable and they went after. And they made him crazy in the cell. And that was the objective. So there was nothing to hide. And for me it's clear it's a certain way stupid, it's human, but it's stupid to hide um, to the friends what do you feel, what is happening, what do you think, when police state is knowing everything. No. For me there was nothing to hide, only to explain. And perhaps to explain to people who don't know, who want to know, what was my process, my way to enter in that, and what state had done with me. I asked Margaret to feel free to give the English-speaking world 
one last word. She gave me the following statement. When I was still writing my first book in Montevideo, I had a visit from a European friend and I gave him my manuscript um, to read, like I did with everyone who passed for my house. And after he had read it, he said, Oh, Margaret, you are writing a book for women. And I was astonished by this commentary. Or in German, it's woman book. It's not only for women, but it's written by women. No, it's both, of course. Yeah. When I came to Germany, I realized how true it was what he had said to me. Because I saw that um, women um, say, said to me, Oh, Margaret, thank you for your book. It really touched me. And men um, greeted me. For example, a man I didn't know before. I met with him and he said, Oh, hello, Margaret, fine that you returned to Germany. Um, if you need something, uh, you can call me. By the way, your book is such a shit. I didn't know him before. And he was not the only one, not the only man who greeted me in this way. And really, till today, I have much more positive feedback by women than by men, really. I think that has to do with um, the weakness about, um, and the errors um, about which I'm writing. And um, of course, I'm um, really convinced, deeply convinced that it's revolutionary, very important to write about weakness and about errors and about falling down. And um, not the way it often is used, was used to write about heroes. I'm not a hero. I don't want to be a hero. And I think that's very thick. Um, if you reclaim and if you look only at heroes in the fight. And for me, it's really something very important in all my life to especially fight, be together with women. I have children, I have a son and I have a daughter. I was um, in love with women, I was in love with men. Um, that's not the point. The point is that um, um, I think it's very important to um, make groups where there are only women because we have another space to treat problems, to treat um, feelings, um, to be open with what is happening uh, with us. That's not this competitive way all the time, this way to um, who is the best. And um, men often want to be the best 
and want to have the last word. And this um, competition all the time is um, annoying for me yet, really. And um, it's... Uh, I make a comparison and I do it often with it. Patriarchy and racism have very similar um, structures. It's necessary to create um, spaces where you don't have to defend all the time. Yeah, women need safe spaces. And for a long time it will continue that they will need safe spaces. Yeah, that's really, um, yeah. I reclaim it, I live it and I, um, I love it. And I, um, I, it's for me really something that gives me uh, a lot of other possibilities to be myself. Before talking with Margaret, I asked some of my German friends about RAF. Astonishing was that the first reaction I got was that there was allegedly a big gender gap inside RAF and that Andreas Bader was sexist and aggressive toward women. I couldn't help but asking, is that true? No, he was um, a man who had very strong convictions and who um, was a man who um, liked to have um, uh, fights. And he had fights with everyone and everywhere and all the time. Yeah, but he was an enormously productive person. Wow. And if you see the, 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 the papers that were made in the prison, from the rough prisoners, they were mainly made by him. And the denounce or the deslegitimation of him is to something that he was intellectually completely stupid. No, nothing. He was not stupid. He was an aggressive person, yeah. But um, he was um, really fighting a lot to understand and to learn. To learn, yeah, really. And he was all the time learning. It's very um, stupid uh, this kind of deslegitimation, deslegi but um, of course it functions. Uh, that's the problem. Look, I make you an example. A Turkish refugee got to know that I was in the AIF, and he said to me, "Oh, when I was living in Turkey, I had big admiration for the AIF." But being here, I learned by young Germans that RF wasn't what I thought, that was a big shit, and he didn't want to continue to speak with me anymore. These young um, people have no idea. They have no information. And they believe the um, psychological warfare that was made in this country they have no idea what does it mean. I'm sure they read no book except one of these shit professors that are always and all the time um, profoundly against this politics and their books are full of lies, full of lies. And they are making political warfare. 
it seems to me to me that really they have to see it nowadays in a concrete situation nowadays what does this mean how medias and certain kind of politicians use medias news um, propaganda to make fake like trump did at that time in the 70s there was a strong part of women movement what recently had begun no again after more intense in the 200 years before and in a certain way i include myself we had um, aspirations to be like the man as good as man as strong as man as um, um, being able to fight like a man uh, that was um, in a certain way the aspiration no and um, in general and personal and um, in RF we were half men half women and um, we didn't understand ourselves or we didn't name ourselves as feminists but i think in this time we were not without giving this name no but we had open relationship sexual relationships women with women men with men i think not i don't know but i know that more women had women relationships and um that's a important thing in a kind of group like that that is that was really open and tolerated and clear now so um sexual dependency um is something that is very important in power relationship now and if if this doesn't exist then um there is less domination possibility of domination by men it of course we were not free of that of course not but we were very concentrated and be practical there were several times that the RAF went on hunger strike in 1970s and in one case in 1974 Holger Mainz dies from a combination of starvation and force feeding after the mysterious death of Bader and Enslin in 1977 in Stammheim prison the remaining members of the RAF tried to maintain their integrity. They published a statement in 1992 explaining that they would no more target people. In 1993, they carried on their final attack. Weiterstadt prison, which was supposed to be a high-security prison costing more than $150 million, was bombed, making a damage of around $80 million. There were no casualties in this attack. RAF dissolved in April 20, 1998 with a statement. The statement ends with this slogan. Revolution says, I was, I am, and I will be. Nevertheless, some operations continued well into the 90s by people who claimed were part of the RAF. The RAF was influenced by the armed guerrilla struggles around the world, but could itself influence other groups inside Germany. The political front that came after RAF in 80s and 90s took responsibility of bombing NATO buildings, U.S. Air Force compounds, 
and attacking officials working for the U.S. military intelligence not to count others. Some assassinations continued in 1980s in a way that the members of the RAF couldn't accept anymore, and they thought these actions are not in line with their political strategies. Those RAF members in prison had to actually take distance from such operations. Margaret has already explained her life as a political activist in Germany and as a refugee in South America in her two books that are available to order on internet. I didn't try to give a full account of the rough in this episode because such would be impossible. Those of you who are interested in reading more about RAF can order these books which have an honest account detailed by Margaret Schiller. Thank you for listening to this episode. Undisturbed is produced by me, Bijan Sabah, and is part of Colorful Voices, the network of radios and podcasts in Germany. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and support the work with your donations. I've put the link to donations in the description of this episode. I will bring more voices in the next episode, so if you haven't subscribed by now, it's the right time to do it. Good luck and be well. Be well.